What the heck did I see? By Hixie. Hello, Swamp Dweller. I am a massive fan and have been for quite some time. I don't want to disclose my name due to privacy reasons, but I have had some weird experiences with demonic entities. It all started when I was around eight years old. We were at a family gathering, and everyone was having fun, but I was barely awake on the couch. I was with my uncle and his daughter. They were around 18, 19 years old. After the party, I remembered my uncle's daughter picked me up and took me back to the car, and I fell asleep once again. I woke up sweating for some reason. I vividly remember sitting on my uncle's lap in the back seat. I woke up sweating for a second time, and when I looked out the window I saw we were about to hit this giant pale creature on all four legs. We were driving a van, and this thing's arms were the height of the car with yellowish glowing eyes. My uncle's daughter swerved the vehicle to avoid it, and due to intense trauma, I passed out. I woke up the following day with my parents sitting beside my bed. They were so happy to see me awake like I had been in a coma for quite some time. They said nothing but were happy to see me, but I knew something was wrong. The day went on and I didn't see my uncle or his daughter for a few days. But when they finally visited us, they acted strangely and asked if I saw anything that night. I told them what I saw, but they said I was dreaming. Moving down a couple weeks later, it was around 8pm, and I was playing some sort of board game with my older brother who was around 13 at the time, and all of a sudden, we heard banging musical instruments from the back room of our house, which would be used like a little jam room. I heard deep growls as well. The next thing I knew, my uncle's daughter barged into the room and grabbed me to take me out of the house. As we exited, I saw my uncle with a machete and a torch going into the back room as my mom and aunties watched. I don't remember anything else but those musical instruments and a deep growl. My parents still played off like I was dreaming or something like that. After these events, I started having sleep paralysis heavily, seeing the same monster watching me from the corner, almost covering half of the room's wall with its shadow. I always dreamt of this thing chasing me in my dreams or I was being watched. But one of the scariest events I ever had was when I was lying down in my mom's room with her reading next to me. I felt as if someone was trying to take over my body. I had the most profound urge to open my eyes, but it was impossible. I couldn't move anything but my fingers, but my hands and feet were stuck. Next thing I knew, my mom was screaming, and as soon as I opened my eyes, I fell hard on the bed and was stuck to the ceiling or something like that. My mom swears that I was somehow saying stuff in Arabic. There was just so many weird things happening. There would be weird Arabic writings and shapes outside of our house on the walls, written in some sort of charcoal. I'm now 18, living in Australia, and honestly, after all these years, I don't know what happened. I always was told that these were dreams or nightmares, and I think my family just tells me that so I feel better about myself. Well... That's my story with some weird, tall, skinny, tall monster that we almost hit with our car that eventually ended up haunting my dreams for years. I don't really know if it was real. I don't know if it was just a fever dream. But I can tell you, 
It very much still feels real. I'll never camp without a gun again. By Robert. Hello, my name is Robert, and I live in Northeast Louisiana. A few weeks ago, my friends Drew, Gregory, Jolene, and I visited some of my family in Washington State. Drew and I are 18 years old, and Gregory and Jolene are 19. We packed up all of our stuff in late October and drove from Louisiana all the way to Washington. We stayed for a couple of days, visiting my uncle and his small family. Then Gregory suggested we camp in the nearby woods on our last night. Drew and Jolene agreed, but I needed to be more open. I don't know why. A million different thoughts ran through my head at once, but in the end, I agreed. We borrowed two tents from my uncle and camped in the woods near his house. If we unzipped our tent doors, we would barely be able to see his porch light. That's how far away the cabin was. Also, he had no neighbors for at least three to four miles. After chilling by the fire we built, we all decided to call it for... After chilling for a while by the fire we built, we all decided to call it a night except for Jolene, who chose to stay up a little bit longer and enjoy the peace. I figured I would stay up with her too. Why not? We stayed up talking for probably another 20 minutes until I saw something huge walking around. It was like 20 yards away at first, and it seemed to be 10 feet tall. Now I could be exaggerating, it was dark, but it seemed like the size of the shadow was exaggeratedly big. We both got nervous and got in one of the tents. We woke up Gregory, who quietly said, What the hell's going on? Still half asleep. Gregory grabbed his hatchet and got up on one knee. Jolene tried to explain what we had seen, but it wasn't making any sense to him. Go back to sleep, y'all, Gregory said, putting his hatchet down and snuggling back into his sleeping bag. After about 20 minutes, we heard the thing walking around our tent slowly. At this point, Gregory was out like a light. I grabbed Gregory's hatchet and put it in my hand. I put my other hand over Jolene's mouth to keep her from screaming. We suddenly realized that we had left Drew alone in his tent with nothing to defend himself. Jolene volunteered to step outside with the hatchet. She jumped back in as soon as she stepped out of the tent. She would not stop breathing super heavy. I asked her what she saw. She said she didn't know, just something vast and solid black. I grabbed the hatchet and stepped outside the tent to see it for myself. I saw the giant thing looking down at our tent. I just about pissed myself. I swung the hatchet at its leg out of fear and heard it scream and shout in pain. It ran off. I was relieved. The scream did wake up Drew and Gregory though, and Gregory asked what it was before any of us could speak a word. He looked down and saw the really big footprints in the deep mud. Drew looked up at us and said, Is that a Bigfoot? My cousin came running with a pistol and a lantern in one hand. What the hell was that? She yelled. Gregory pointed at the footprints. I ain't never coming without a gun again, he said with a grit in his voice. I couldn't sleep again until we returned to Louisiana. That was one creepy night. A shapeshifter ruined my fishing trip by 
Kyle E. This is the time I swear I heard and saw a skimwalker or shapeshifter with two of my friends. At the time I lived in North Carolina, I won't say where precisely for privacy reasons, but my friends Caden, Alex, and I decided it would be a fun idea if we went camping with some weed and some alcohol and just a 38 on us. We collectively decided to go to a nice trail near a lake that we all enjoyed, and it seemed relaxing, but man, was I wrong. It took an hour and a half to get to the campsite, so when we got there, we weren't really in the mood to set up at first. We wanted to talk or we wanted to walk around for a bit and see the lovely lake view. After we chilled out for a bit, we all agreed it was time to set up because it was going to get dark soon. So Alex and I set up the camp while Caden started the fire and put rabbit stew over it. This next part is essential. I remember Alex saying, Hey, can you help me with this? Because he couldn't put the rods in the loop. A little after Alex and I were done, we asked Caden to see if the dinner was ready, and he said it would be shortly. It was at this moment I suddenly felt cold down my neck, like I was being watched. So I put on my holster for 38. My friends noticed this and asked what was wrong. I told them I felt like I was being watched, and they shrugged it off as some sort of joke, and I immediately felt a little better after this. Fast forward three hours, and we were by the campfire, smoking our joints and drinking, when I felt a cold rush through me again. I didn't want to say anything about it this time, so I told them I was getting tired, and they all agreed. So we put out the fire, and Alex said he had to take a leak, and Kaden and I said fine. So we packed up trash and put out the fire. Not a minute later, we both heard Alex call us from the woods. Hey, can you help me with this? But it was weird, because it was in a distorted voice and impossible, because we saw Alex go right out of the camp, and this came from the left. This freaked Kaden and me out, so we called Alex on my phone to see if what he needed. I was already scared enough, I didn't want to go into the woods. He picked up and said, what? I replied, what do you need help with, man? And he said, what do you mean? I immediately pulled out my 38 and told him to get back to the site as quickly as he could. I stayed on call with him so I could hear the leaves crunching on call, but I didn't listen to it outside the camp, so I knew he went a little way. Then I heard again, hey, can you help me with this? Now honestly, I'm not a tough guy on the inside or out, so my eyes started to tear up from pure fear. As I turned and saw Caden, I saw him with the same face. We both knew it wasn't Alex calling out, but it sounded exactly like him, so we were terrified. It felt like an eternity, but most likely was only 20 seconds later when we heard footsteps coming from the right of the camp. We peeked out the tent and saw Alex with his phone. We told him what had happened, and he did not believe us. He said we couldn't handle being crossfaded, which was slightly true, but we told him that this was actually, like, not even a joke. This was real. He wanted to go check it out, so he asked for the pistol. I told him no, so he said, Come with me then. Me being stupid, I gave in because he was my friend and he was also calling me a pussy. We got out of the tent and walked toward the area. When we walked for about five seconds, the smell of pure death hit my nose and made me gag. I knew we were near a dead animal. Alex wanted to walk a little bit further, so we did. And then, that's when we heard it. Hey, can you help me with this? and we saw a seven-foot-tall, pale creature standing on its hind legs. Its legs were crooked, its eyes had a white glow to it, and without hesitation I pulled out my gun and shot six rounds into its chest. We all ran back to the camp when we heard it growl and scream. We didn't know if it was following us, or if it was because I packed the shit out of it, but we left as fast as we could. We packed up almost all we could, and I'm pretty sure we didn't leave much behind, if anything. 
This took place a few years ago and still makes me feel sick to even think about it. Please let me know in the comments what you guys think about this. Wild Animal Attack by J. Alvarez Hello Swamp Dweller. The following event happened when I was 14 years old. I am now 48. I have never told anyone what happened that day so long ago, but I struggle every day to forget this. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, in a town very close to El Yunque Rainforest. My friends and I always used to go fishing and explore parts of El Yunque. On this day, me and my friend Jose went swimming and fishing for some time since the school was out. We took our usual route on our bikes. We hid them and continued on foot up the mountain to the creek where we swam all the time. We had a blast with some tourists that found the stream. The tourists eventually left and we stayed behind. We started to do some fishing close by when we realized it was getting dark very quickly. We did not bring flashlights with us because we had forgotten, and around that time there were no cell phones. We struggled to find our way back. We were falling and sliding all around. We came to a stop when we heard trees and branches snapping ahead of us. We thought it could be wild pigs or dogs. So we climbed one of the trees and stayed silent to see what it was. A few minutes passed and Jose got down from the tree. He was trying to join me where I was. I can see him in the darkness due to the moonlight shining when he just disappeared. It was like he was swept off his feet by something. I kept quiet. Maybe I was afraid, but I stayed silent. I didn't even attempt to try to find him. I, I looked from the tree I was in until I heard him call my name. For some reason, something inside of me told me not to answer. I then saw him run past my tree, and five seconds later I listened to a commotion nearby, and he started screaming for help. I was petrified. I didn't know what to do. I was a child watching my best friend getting hurt. I blamed myself for not trying to help. I was just... I was just stuck in a trance of fear. I can hear him being dragged away by something in the darkness. I stayed on the tree for hours until the next day's light. I ran down the mountain without looking back. I grabbed my bike and went straight home. My parents were not home because they had gone to work. They did not know I was even missing the night before. Jose's parents alerted the police and I said that he was not with me the night back. I was afraid they would blame me for what happened to him. They searched for days and on the fourth day they found him, or what was left of him. His belly was torn open, his eyes and tongue were missing, and police said there was nothing indicating animal predation. So what happened to him? I think about this all the time. Maybe if I had helped him, he'd still be here. Why was I such a coward? I Never Enjoyed Camping by Anonymous I never enjoyed camping. I savored the comfortability that modern life affords, but every year, my old group of high school friends would go up to the same lake, set up the tents on the same shorefront, drink the same beer, and tell the same stories. I always did enjoy that. It was like having a lousy job, but all your coworkers were awesome. It was making it just bearable. So, for the two to three days a year, I put myself through crapping in the woods for the laughs that came with it. We'd all drive up on the Friday after work and usually take the Monday off following the weekend and stay until then. We'd park and hike two kilometers along the water to the campsite we always went to and set up there for the long weekend. The last time we went camping, I was running late. I had a project to finalize and it was sent back by my boss to be tweaked. I couldn't leave the city with my girlfriend Kat until after 9pm. 
A storm was at our backs the whole drive up to the country, and it seemed to be headed right where we were. Then we hit traffic. An 18-wheeler had jackknifed, and the road was getting cleaned up. The pre-storm rain caught up with us. Cat and I didn't get to turn off for the camp parking lot until after midnight. I recognized all four of my friend's cars parked near the waterfront. Then a flurry of texts came in from my buddy Jeremy. The reception was spotty, so you could never really count on communication that way. The text had been sent a few hours apart. Jeremy told me they'd switched sites this year, and they'd finally made it to what they called the island. The island was always spoken of as being forbidden, mainly because it was near impossible to get to. It was diamond-shaped, but longer than wide. It was surrounded by sharp rocks and filled with dense trees. A heavy current came at it, head-on, and split the water rush to both sides. This made it impossible to reach because the only side that wasn't overcome with rapids and sharp rocks was the backside, which had a high, rocky cliff that jetted up 30 feet above the water. The ridge had a large, flat surface that looked out onto the lake and would have been the perfect campsite. If only it were accessible. Because of the heavy rapids and rocks, it remained untouched and was the place everyone wanted to camp, but no one could. Kayakers and boaters avoided the rapids around it because of how sharp the rocks were. It was a beautiful thing to look at, but treacherous and potentially fatal to attempt to conquer. That year, there had been a severe drought in the country, though. It had not rained in weeks, so the water was down, and the rocky lake bed of the rapids was exposed. You could now walk across the island. Jeremy said the group made a snap decision. They trekked across and camped on the site everyone had always wanted to be. He told me they had set up their tents on the rock slab that overlooked the lake and saved me a spot near the back. I felt uneasy reading the text. I didn't know much about the lake or water flow systems, but with the storm at our backs, who knew how long the rapids would stay down? We could get trapped on the island. Cat felt uneasy about it too, but we packed all of our gear and trekked along the waterfront to our usual campsite. From there we could see the island and all my friends' tents on the rock slab that overlooked the lake. The storm had finally caught up to us and the rain was getting heavier. Cat and I decided to stay at our usual spot for the night, and I set up a tarp overhead so we could pitch the tent without getting everything soaked. When that was done, we were both exhausted, and she crawled into her sleeping bag. I ventured out in my rain slicker to the lake's edge. I sent a few texts to Jeremy and the others. None of them went through, though. I looked at the island, which was a hundred yards away, and focused on the tents. Only two tents were visible, both with stationary lights turned on inside, causing them to glow like fireflies in the dark landscape. I couldn't see any movement, though, but that was not surprising. It was late, and they had all probably gone to bed. As I turned back to my tent, my flashlight caught strange shapes of rocks in the dried up rapids. Like they all had abnormally curved edges. I didn't think much of it and joined Cat in the tent. When Cat and I woke up the following day, it was still dark out, even though it was past 10 a.m. The storm was growing heavier. We put rain gear on and went to the lake's edge to look out at the island. The storm had caused the water to rise, just a few inches higher, but it was starting to move quickly. The visible tents looked the same on the rock slab. The flashlights were still on in the same positions. No movement. We figured the idiots were probably still drunk or hungover and had no idea what the situation with the storm was. I yelled across to the island, but the rain and thunder covered my voice. Cat and I talked about it and decided to trek across the rocky floor of the lake while we could. We climbed down onto the lake bed, five or six feet below and made our way through the muddy rocky terrain. 
As we got closer to the island, I noticed the strange shaped rocks I had seen the night before. There were a lot more than I had previously seen. They seemed to surround the entire island. There were more rows of sharp rocks jutting up in huge pointed boulders with multiple carved and sharp edges. None of them looked naturally eroded and formed by time though. They did show aging, but they didn't look like they had been there forever, if you get what I mean. They looked like they had been sharpened like fish hooks. No wonder kayakers and boaters didn't come this way. As I looked closer, I saw inscriptions carved into the sharper hooked rocks. The carvings were deteriorating, but I could tell they were symbols. Someone, long ago, was responsible for these symbols and hooks. We continued toward the island, narrowly avoiding the sharp rocks and slippery ground. Along the island's edge, we found a portion of stones that opened and gave an entrance. We climbed the rocks and made our way onto the island. The woods were dense and dark, so we decided to move along the side of the island and towards the rock slab and campsite. The storm was starting to get heavier, and boy did it make the climb up hard, but we found our way to the campsite and saw four tents. There was a soggy fire pit, some beer bottles and cigarette butts, loose garbage and foldable chairs, but no people. None of my friends were there. We looked inside all of the tents and everyone's belongings were still there, but they themselves were missing. Cat thought maybe they were in the woods, perhaps even they found a cabin or shack on the interior, something to investigate or ride out the storm in. Then I saw the carvings. The giant slab of stone we were standing on had lines of the same symbols from the hooked rocks on the lake bed. Cat noticed them too and mentioned they looked indigenous. We found a rough pathway into the woods, but the path wasn't more than just trampled grass, shrubs and bushes, and some beer cans and cigarette butts. We followed the trail as it led further into the island's interior. The dense trees blocked out the rain from above and any light the sky gave off was long gone. The interior quickly felt like night, and the sounds of the storm drowned out. All we could hear were the tall swaying trees overhead as we moved through the mossy, vine-filled woods. The trail of cans and butts ended, and the path disappeared. We thought about turning back, but then we heard something. A whimper. It was coming from somewhere up ahead. It was animalistic. It sounded hurt and afraid, whistling upwards at the end of each whine. I continued forward. Cat followed behind me. On the path ahead, there was a long, nylon-looking rope. We followed it and found it leading us to the source of the whimpering. I realized I wasn't following a string. I was following a leash. Jeremy's pit bull, Oscar, was crouched under an upturned tree, trembling. He had several small slashes across his body. None were profound, but they all looked like they hurt. We approached him calmly and managed to lead him out from under the tree's roots. As we inspected him, it was undeniable that an animal had attacked him. Cat and I whispered to each other, deciding to take Oscar and get off the island and hike back to our car for cell reception. Something terrible had happened. We cut to the right, heading directly for the island's edge, and not back through the woods where we came. Not back to the tents. Then we heard more sounds ahead of us. They were echoing through the dark trees. Cracks, snaps, breaks. It sounded like something was splitting thick tree branches. Oscar started whimpering again and pulled away. Cat took that as a sign and started backing up with Oscar. She motioned for us to go to the opposite side of the island and cross there, but I needed to see what the sounds were. I motioned for her to go ahead and crept towards the cracking trees more. Up ahead, I could see a small clearing in the woods. 
I peeked into it and saw all the leaves and grass were red. In the center, a hole was dug into the side of a large hill. There were clothes strewn about, all stained with some browning red shade. Then I saw the bodies, if you could call them that. I saw Jeremy first, though it was difficult to tell it was him aside from the bright neon hunting slicker he always wore. His body, just like the others, had been viciously opened and exposed like a fillet. To my left was the source of the sounds. I think one of my friends, Tim, was ripped into pieces. Something was crouched between the two halves of his body. A tall, skinny, vile creature. The beast was all earth tone. Greens and blacks and browns. It had tufts of thick, coarse black hair. It looked like it was sticking out on various parts of its leathery skin. It was solid and robust and clawed through Tim's thighs. The creature pulled out Tim's femur and bit down into it. I looked around at the other bodies and realized they were all missing their bones. The creature didn't eat their skin, their muscle, or fat. It wasn't interested in the meat. It just wanted to eat their bones, which had been torn, pulled, and ripped away from the muscles and ligaments. Even the skulls had been broken apart, and the insides cast aside as the head was devoured. I watched the creature's jaw grind down on Tim's femur. The chewing was horrifying, the breaking, crushing, and pulverizing a bone. Then, the femur snapped, and the familiar crack filled the woods again. A whimper came from the woods behind me, from Oscar. The creature jerked in my direction. I ducked behind a tree before it saw me, but I knew it would be coming. It hurt Oscar. In a low, crouched position, I started rushing through the woods, following the path Cat and Oscar made. But I wasn't quiet as I had hoped, and sticks under my feet began to break, echoing through the trees. A screech roared from the woods behind me. I ran faster, knowing the creature was aware other people were on the island now. Its island. I heard branches breaking and heavy movement behind me as the creature gained on me. Then I started to listen to the storm again. The trees were becoming less dense, and as I was getting to the other side of the island, I saw an opening and rushed for it. I got to the island's edge and was greeted by a raging thunderstorm. The water had risen, and the rapids were back, though they were only half their average height. I looked at the shore and saw that Cat and Oscar had made it across. I climbed down and quickly started trying to make my way to them. The rapids were at my waist and pushing hard. I kept grabbing onto larger rocks for support, but all of their sharpened edges kept cutting my hands. Then Kat screamed. She was staring behind me, at the island. I turned back, only for a moment, and saw the creature climbing down to the lake bed and following me through the growing rapids. The animal was taller than me and moved much faster than I, but it had the same problems trying to get footing. I kept going, Kat yelling for me to hurry the beast behind me gaining. It was only feet away from me now, and its long splintered claws could almost grab my shoulder. It swung at me, narrowly missing. I was still another twenty yards from Cat in the shorefront, and I knew the creature would catch me on the next claw swing down. The only thing I could do was let my legs go from under me. Just before the creature swung down, I let my legs go limp. My body was immediately rushed forward with the rapids, and before I knew it, I was thirty yards downriver but I slammed into one of the boulders, and a row of sharp rocks dug into my side and ripped through the bicep of my arm. Another, more, poignant and pointier rock put right through my shoulder. It was excruciating, especially with the water pushing me away from the boulder, causing the wounds to open and tear. 
I heard that horrible screech again and looked up to see the creature had done what I had done. Only the rapids had carried it further to the right. A sharp, long rock was sticking through the creature's abdomen. It had been impaled and was trying to pull itself forward and off, but the hooked edge of the tip was too jagged, and the rapids kept hitting the creature, forcing it back to the hilt. The creature didn't look like it was going to get free, and I realized I'd suffer the same fate if I didn't get loose from the rock I had been snagged on. I managed to pull myself forward and free from the stones lodged in my shoulder and arm. The hooks on the ends tore off a good chunk of skin and meat when I did, but I was free. I slipped, struggled, and fought to the shore where Cat and Oscar were waiting. I rolled both of my ankles and could barely stand up. Cat helped me up, and we looked back at the rapids. The rising water and heavy current were overcoming the creature. We could only see it from the chest, and it was beginning to give up. But when it saw us watching, it got a jolt of energy and was finally attempting to pull itself off the rock. We didn't wait around to see if it did. I did my absolute best to rush Cat and Oscar through the woods, and we found a cottage not too far. We called the police from there, and an extensive investigation started. But ultimately, all that was released to us or the public was a wild animal attack had left several young adults dead on an island they weren't supposed to be on. I still think back to the rocks and boulders surrounding the island, the sharp ones, the one I'd been stuck to and the one the creature died on. Up close, they were all stony fish hooks. I always thought fish hooks were used to catch something to eat, but I was starting to think these were used in the sense of keeping something from trying to escape. Whoever sharpened those rocks, however, they did it and they knew exactly what they were doing. I was a park ranger stationed in a fire tower. It had a strange set of rules. By Horror Writers 1717. When I first got the job, I could not believe my luck. I was a very solitary person. I loved to read and be alone. When I saw an ad for a park ranger manning a fire tower, I just about jumped out of my skin. Working overnight at a Walmart wasn't the best job in the world. There are some stories I could tell about that as well but I applied for the job and was ecstatic that I got it. They only made me undergo a week of training before my first shift. Most of it was dry reading and ensuring I was qualified in CPR. They showed me the job's ins and outs and I followed in my car as we drove to the tower. In the middle of the day, it was awe-inspiring to stare at the underside of the tower looming above me, suspended high in the air by metal rivets. Once I started climbing the narrow metal stairs with hints of rust at the edges, I was somewhat less than excited. I was now terrified as I do not like heights very much as it is. I don't go all vertigo or anything, but I prefer to stay on the ground. Once we reached the top and pushed open the trap door to get onto the deck that surrounded the tower, I was doing a bit better. I opened the door that led into the tower's interior. Looking around the room made me forget all about the terrible climb. It was like a small apartment. There was a small refrigerator, sink, counter, cupboards, and a small table. In the center of the room was a table with a map permanently attached. Of course, there were windows all around. There was a 360 degree view as you would expect for a fire tower in the middle of a state park forest. The view was amazing. I could see the peaks and valleys for miles in every direction. It was a photographer's dream. The other ranger explained what was expected of me. We worked 24 hour shifts, so there would be times I would have to sleep, but I would have to set an alarm to get up and scam for problems at least once per hour during the night. During daytime hours, I had to watch every 30 minutes. 
there was a radio to report any trouble and a phone in case I needed to call the fire department. In my mind, I was already drooling at the thought of getting paid to take amazing pictures and sit around reading books. The ranger told me that it was essential that I read the rule book first. He asked if I had any questions, and I said no. He reinforced that I could not leave the tower no matter what until I was relieved. I followed him down the narrow staircase to get to my supplies, get it all out of my car, and pack it up in here. He got his truck and hesitated for a moment as if he wanted to say something else, but then he shut the door, wished me well, and drove away. I took three trips to get all of my stuff up to the top. Bringing a few grocery boxes in the house is nothing at home, but here it became life and death. I was near the top with a box in front of me when I stumbled on one of the narrow steps and nearly fell over the side. I paused for a long moment to regain my balance before continuing to the top. I suddenly realized that this job might not be the cakewalk I thought it was. I pushed that thought to the back of my mind and went for my subsequent two loads. Basic supplies, books, phone chargers, and cameras occupied the second and last trips. Once I was up for good, I collapsed into the chair. I was on my way to Napland when I heard a static over the radio. I jumped up and grabbed it. Hello? I said, but no one answered. I figured this was the ranger's subtle way of reminding me that it was time to do a check. But lugging three loads up tiny stairs of death had put a severe crimp in my firewatch time. It had nearly been an hour since the other ranger had left. I did my slow pan around the room checking each part of the forest for smoke and seeing none. Having completed my first go-around, I celebrated with a water bottle while I put the groceries away. The cupboards weren't empty, but there wasn't any gourmet delight here either. There was nearly a whole shelf dedicated to baked beans that didn't exactly thrill me, but I had the supplies that should do me for a few shifts. I sat the bread on the counter and loaded the cold cuts in the fridge. I would get some more options the next time I went shopping. When I finished putting things away, it was time for another check. The sun was just beginning to set, so I grabbed my camera and took some fantastic pictures. I couldn't wait to upload them to my computer when I got home. As I looked around the room, my eyes landed on the manual. I realized I hadn't even read it yet. I sighed and took it over to the chair. I was sure it would have me out cold in no time. As I opened the book, a piece of notebook paper fell out. I picked it up and it read, quote unquote, the actual rules. Never. Under any circumstances, leave the fire tower until you are relieved. Turn off all lights between the hours of 2 and 3 a.m. If you receive a radio transmission or phone call between those hours, do not answer. If anyone knocks on the trap door during those hours, tell them they'll have to wait until morning. Do not open the door. If you see a glowing object floating toward the tower, do not look at it. Cover your eyes and count to 50. When you open your eyes, it should be gone. If not, cover and count to 50 again. If animals surround the tower, don't go down to look. Fire your flare gun up into the air twice, one minute apart. Then lock yourself in the bathroom and hope for the best. I sat the note down and stared at it. Was this a joke? Were they having some fun with the new guy? I wasn't looking forward to getting hazed at 2am. I put the note back in the book and skimmed through the manual. It was a real snooze fest for the standard rules and nonsense. For the next check, I decided to use binoculars. I was rewarded by seeing a bear in 3D. I pulled out my camera and took some pictures, but the zoom wasn't as much as I needed to get some magnificent shots. You could still tell there was a bear, but it was a bit blurry. I decided to go camera shopping with my first paycheck. What's the use of having this spectacular view if I can't take any good pictures of it? Soon after sunset came the twilight. The sky lit up a brilliant orange. 
I took some more pictures and did my scan. I was just about to go back inside when I noticed a thin wisp of smoke in the distance. I grabbed my binoculars and tried to get a better view, but too many trees were in my way. I pulled up my compass, got a general direction, grabbed the radio, and called the ranger on duty. I told him I had a fire and gave him the direction and general distance. He acknowledged it and said he would go check it out. I stayed glued to my binoculars, waiting to see the smoke lessen. Minutes seemed to have taken an eternity as the smoke continued to rise. Nearly a half hour later, the radio came to life. Hey, rookie. The ranger said. Did you find it? Did you put it out? I still see smoke. Did I tell you the wrong place? I said into the radio all in one breath. Whoa there. He said. Everything's fine. It was just a campfire. A what? A campfire. He said. Nothing to worry about. A campfire? I repeated in a daze. Yeah, you'll want to see more smoke, and it should be a lot thicker and darker before you call it in. I stood in silence. My face beat red with embarrassment. Cheer up. The ranger said into the silence. At least you didn't call the fire department. I looked over at the phone, knowing I was mere minutes away from doing that. Yeah, thanks, I said. Sorry about that. Don't worry, kid. He said. At least you erred on the side of caution instead of letting the forest burn down. I put my face into my palm and shook my head. So much for an excellent first impression. Twilight had faded leaving a few last vestiges of light as the clouds transformed from dirty gray to black. I realized just how alone I was out here when the canopy of the night entirely fell. Doing my checks from inside was nearly impossible. I had lights on, every window I looked out became a mirror of me reflecting back at myself. Alone in a wooden box suspended a hundred feet above the ground made it that much creepier. I stepped out onto the deck in the cool evening air. The total darkness was oppressive. I couldn't see anything. How was I supposed to see smoke? I sauntered around the deck, looking out blindly at the trees. As my eyes adjusted, I could make out some shapes of the mountains and even the soft glow in the distance of the nearest town. That was a small comfort to know that things still existed out in the world and I hadn't been plunged into this cover of darkness. I finished my check and stepped back inside. After being out in the dark, it was way too bright. I turned off the leading overhead light and light over the entrance. The room settled into a comfortable glow with enough light to see but not be blind. I was a little too cozy. I felt a nap coming on. I laid down on the surprisingly comfortable cot and closed my eyes. I woke up sometime later to static sounding on the radio. I reached for the radio to answer it, but something in my mind told me not to. I looked at my watch and it said 2.12am. I froze, looking around the lit room. I thought about the strange rules I had read earlier. I reached up and turned off the light, plunging the room into darkness as my eyes adjusted I could see just a few things. I looked out the window and could swear I saw someone peering in at me. Just then I heard static on the radio. There was a voice trying to get through but it seemed weak. I waited to see if they would call again. A minute later, static sounded again. Beneath it I heard the voice. It was a little stronger this time and I could make out just something barely. It sounded like it said, Help me. It said it in a feeble yet insistent voice. I reached for the radio again, but something made me glance at my watch first. It was 2.23 a.m. I faltered and didn't answer. Those creepy rules, I thought. What if they were real? I've already broken one by having the lights on. What happens when you break the rules? I sat in silence, wanting to know the answer, but at the same time not wanting to know. The, the radio came back to life, though much more prominent this time. Help me. Can anyone hear me? Help me. The voice sounded desperate. I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. It had a strange quality that I couldn't quite place. 
I fought the urge to answer, not knowing if I would be fired for dereliction of duty or not. This is what I was out here for, after all. I needed to answer, but my mind wouldn't let go of those rules. The minutes ticked by like hours. The radio sounded out its plea three more times, each time sounding more and more desperate. I watched the time, counting the seconds until three. When the time finally came, I picked up the radio. Whoever was calling for help, please state your position so I can relay help to you, I said. Who is this? Came the answer on the radio. This is a park ranger manning a fire tower. Well, park ranger, I've been on this channel all night, and yours is the first voice I've heard. That's not possible, I thought. I've had several calls for help over the last hour, I said. Are you sure? Absolutely, I wrote down the time of each call. And why didn't you answer them until now? I paused. What could I say? Because of a weird list of rules that told me not to? Ranger? I... I had... I said hesitantly. Extenuating circumstances. Extenuating circumstances? The voice repeated as though tasting them. And what circumstances would those be? Whoever this was, they weren't going to let it go. I'm not at liberty to say. You mean like falling asleep and breaking the rules? The voice said, sounding deeper, raspier, and more menacing. I froze. I hadn't turned the lights on yet, leaving the room in eerie darkness, which left me very exposed. I slowly panned around, looking out the windows and remembering the earlier feeling of being watched. You can look all you want, but you won't see me. The voice said, It's after three. I said, hoping the terror in my voice wasn't very evident. You have no power over me. The voice chuckled. It wasn't a pleasant sound. Normally you'd be correct. However, you broke the rules. What if I didn't know about the rules? I said, gasping at straws. Nice try. But you knew that you would be safe after three. Damn it. I thought. It picked up on that. So, what do you want? I said, fearing the answer. The voice said. Only now it sounded like many voices speaking at once. My legs turned to rubber as I stumbled over to the door and stepped onto the deck. The moon was rising half full, casting light into the darkness. I looked down and saw over a dozen large animals surrounding the tower in a circle, and each one of them was looking up at me. I dove back inside and locked the door. I frantically searched for the flashlight. Once I found it, I picked up the phone and called the ranger station. There was no dial tone. I hung up and tried again, but still nothing. I pulled out my cell phone and there was no signal. I paused to clear my mind. Okay, I thought. You're freaked out right now, but what happened? A weirdo on the radio? Some animals around the tower? This list is making you paranoid. Just then, I looked outside and there was a light off in the distance that looked like an airplane. The problem was, it was heading straight toward me. It was mesmerizing. I stared into the rapidly approaching glow until I realized it was going to ram into the tower. I found the best cover I could on the opposite side of the room and surrounded myself with as much furniture as possible. Since the furnishings were sparse, I dragged the chair in front of me. I covered my eyes and hoped for the best. I may or may not have mumbled one of those, I promise I'll be good if you get me out of this prayers. The seconds tumbled into minutes and nothing happened. I peeked over the counter's edge and the light was gone. I let out a sigh of relief and wondered why I hadn't heard any engine noises. I decided it was because I was too busy ducking for cover. Then it hit me. I grabbed the manual and pulled out the list of rules. There it was, rule number five, if you see a glowing object floating toward the tower, do not look at it, cover your eyes and count the fifty. When you open your eyes, it should be gone. If not, cover and count to 50 again. I reread the rules and realized how many had come to pass. For a long moment, I thought that maybe it was an elaborate joke. Some of the rangers were yanking the rookie's chain. 
but there was too much I could not explain. The radio transmissions, the glowing lights, the animals surrounding the tower. Then I realized I had broken that rule too. I hadn't fired the flare gun as instructed. I dug through the emergency supplies cupboard and found the gun. I grabbed two flares and stepped out onto the deck. As I questioned the intelligence of firing bursts that could end up causing forest fires when I was supposed to be trying to prevent them, I heard a strange sound. I held my breath and cocked my ear for a better listen. It wasn't just one sound, it was many. I glanced over the rail side and toward the ground I saw all the animals growling and pawing at the bottom working themselves into a frenzy. I backed away, loaded the first flare and then pointed up and fired. It rose majestically, glowing blood red until gravity slowed its ascent and pulled it back to the earth. I watched closely to ensure it went out and where it landed, just in case. I waited a minute and fired the second flare. Watching where it landed, I stepped back and hid inside the bathroom as instructed. I knew in my heart that I would be safe from the animals if I didn't go down the steps. The radio sounded off, scaring me nearly half to death. Fire tower number five, the voice said. I've seen your flares and I'm on the way. Are you physically injured? No, none at the moment, I said. I'll explain when you get here. Roger that, in route. I tried to calm my nerves by thinking about what job I would apply for next and how unfortunate it was that this one didn't work out. I thought about what I would tell the ranger when he got there. I couldn't tell him the truth, but what else could I say? Some animals at the bottom of the tower scared me. I honestly considered calling him back and telling him not to even come when I felt heavy footsteps on the bottom stairs. I must have been daydreaming and let time slip by. I stepped out of the bathroom and went to the trap door. Are you already here? I said into the radio as I reached down to unlatch the door. That was fast. What are you talking about? Came the clear answer over the radio. I'm not there yet. I paused as I felt the footsteps come closer to the top. Where are you? I said quietly. I can barely see the tower. I'm probably a mile away. His words hit me like a sledgehammer. I looked down at the bolt I was about to unlatch and slowly pulled my hand back. Which direction are you coming from? I said. Southeast. I looked in the direction and sure enough I saw headlights approaching. The radio sounded again but with a slightly different voice. Tower ignored that last transmission. It said. I'm already here. Let me in please. I stared down at the trap door as though it wanted to bite me. Tower, let me in. It said more insistently. I backed away as something began beating on the trap door with tremendous force. The board shook with every impact. I stepped inside and locked the door, then barricaded it with the only loose piece of furniture, the chair. Tower 5, I don't know who is talking to you, but it isn't me. Do not open that door. Repeat, do not open that door. I backed into the bathroom with the flare gun in hand and locked the door. The pounding on the trap door became louder. I knew it wouldn't take much more of a beating. The whole room shook with every impact. I closed my eyes and prayed in earnest this time. And then my salvation came from the engine sound of a pickup truck. I knew that the real ranger was here. I listened as it came closer and then stopped. There was an awful silence for a moment and then gunfire. Over and over multiple shots, shot in succession. Then there was a full lull followed by more shots. The pounding on the trap door stopped as soon as the truck pulled up. The ghost is clear, Ranger. You can open the door now. Came a voice over the radio. I put my hand on the knob, smiling to go out and greet my savior when I heard a weak transmission. Don't. Not me. It rasped. A heartbeat later, the screaming began. It was a gut-wrenching scream. A terrible suffering. I could hear it beneath me. All I could do was drop to the floor and curl up in a ball as the screaming went on and on. I closed my eyes and tried not to imagine that poor ranger being ripped to shreds by God knows what. Soon the screams lessened in volume and intensity as they were moving away. 
I rocked back and forth, hugging my knees until unconsciousness mercifully took me. I woke up to strange voices calling my name. I opened my eyes and people in blue uniforms surrounded me. I panicked and backed away as fast as I could until my back hit a wall. Calm down, one of them said. It's alright. I looked around the room like an animal that had been backed into a corner. I was ready to fight my way out. Are you injured? He said. My mind raced to remember where I was. I looked out the window and it was morning. The sun was shining and I could see deep blue clouds. Everything from last night came rushing to me. I looked around the room and saw nothing out of the ordinary. I'm not injured, I said to the EMT. Can you tell us what happened here? A ranger said from behind them. I looked over at the manual that contained the list and rules and for a heartbeat considered telling them to read them. No, was all I could say instead. Can I go home now? The ranger glared at me. I know that they were wanting more answers and they weren't getting them and they were frustrated. Is he alright to drive? The ranger asked the EMT. They gave me a once-over BP, lungs, and heart rate, and they didn't find anything to be concerned about. I'd say physically he's fine, the EMT said. The ranger sighed. Go ahead, he said, but I'll want to talk to you tomorrow. I nodded and stood, gathered my things, and started toward the door. When I got to the open trap door, I hesitated seeing it had been hacked with an axe. I took a tentative first step, then another... Surviving a night like this only to die after falling down several flights of stairs would be pretty ironic. As I made my way down, white-knuckling the railing the entire way down, I saw people busy at the bottom. They picked up shell casings with gloves and put them into plastic bags. I could see blood spots here and there, but no human or animal bodies. I saw the trail of blood as it disappeared into the woods. I stood on the bottom step for quite some time wondering if I was allowed to step onto the ground. I took the stage bolted to my car, and stared at it for quite some time. I just... I just couldn't seem to get myself to turn the car on and drive out of there as fast as I could. Eventually, I turned the car on, got into the gravel road, and a deer walked out in front of me. I slammed on the brakes and slid to a stop mere inches from hitting it. It did not move and it just stood there staring at me. As I looked more closely, I saw blood in its nose and mouth. My heart skipped a beat when I saw a shred of ranger's patch impaled on one of its antlers. Its eyes bored into mine as I slammed into reverse and then drove, swerved around the deer, and broke every speed limit going home. I called my boss and quit as soon as I got there. Then I packed and started looking for a job in the city. Maybe I can find an excellent, quiet warehouse to guard or something simpler. But if it has a strange set of rules, I'm walking out, no questions asked. Hi, Swamp Dweller. I'm from Arizona and I listen to your podcast while I'm working, doing my homework, and other things. I enjoy these stories. Since I'd hate to see this podcast go, I'd like to share one of my family's cryptid stories with you. Because of the scary encounter, I usually don't turn down others' experiences immediately and deem them crazy. This encounter happened in the mid-90s in the Sonoran Desert. My grandma, her husband, her daughter, her sister-in-law, and her brother and sister were returning from Yuma, heading to Phoenix. I forgot exactly why they were traveling. I'm tempted to say they were visiting family, but I could be wrong. One of the reasons I'm mentioning all of these people is to give this story the credibility it deserves. This was not an individual experience. Five people witnessed this. My grandfather was the only person in the car who didn't see this creature. But that was because he was sitting in the shotgun seat and didn't get the right view or angle. 
It was close to midnight and my great uncle Stephen was driving. Not rushing home, just enjoying the silent drive through the desert like everybody else in the vehicle. This is where things got weird. My deaf great aunt was looking out the car window into the darkness and then suddenly grabbed my grandma's arm. My grandma was confused when she saw her face. It looked like she had seen a ghost or something. My grandma looked too and saw a figure running alongside the vehicle. She says it must have been around seven feet tall, but that wasn't the scariest feature. It was the creature's face. I mean, its eyes were stretched like Mudo's eyes from the 2014 film Godzilla. But even scarier than that was the creature that smiled at them with crooked, sharp teeth as it glared evilly into the window. My great-uncle pressed the gas pedal, sending the car roaring a hundred miles per hour down the street. The creature still ran alongside the vehicle but failed to keep up after my uncle pushed past a hundred. My grandpa, who hadn't seen the animal, said, What the hell are you doing? My great-uncle turned to him. You didn't see that thing? Though this encounter rocked my family, they don't like to talk about it much. They didn't start talking about the creature until years after when one of them decided to bring it up. My great-uncle and one of the other family members drew up some sketches of the creature and compared them, revealing the graphics to be nearly identical, which was weird because they sent the pictures to each other and hadn't seen the person's picture before. My grandma drew up a sketch for me to see. It looked genuinely evil as the others had described it. Even though they don't like these types of movies, my family watched The Predator because the creature in the film resembled the beast they had seen that chilling night. My grandma remembers watching it and says that was what it looked like. I remember the sketch looking very similar as well. So, the question remains, what exactly was this creature? I have no idea. My family deemed it a chupacabra since it somewhat corresponds with a chupacabra's profile. But I saw some problems with it. Chupacabras have never been reported this large before in any part of the world, usually topping off at 4 or 5 feet tops and are known to have spikes on their back, unlike the creature my family encountered, which had somewhat of dreadlocks dangling on the back of its grotesque head. I think it's some evil spirit or something concerning Native American witchcraft, like skimwalkers or something of the like, but I do not know exactly what it is. Yet, this story sticks with me even until this day, reminding me of my distant Native American heritage. I want to relate a story that happened many years ago. My mother experienced this when she was a young girl. Note, she was the youngest of all eight children. I am now 59 years old, and this was told to me when I was 15 or 16 by my mother about strange happenings when she was 10 or 11. So, putting the time of this somewhere between 1932 and 1933 in Georgia around the Griffin-Milner area, somewhere south of Atlanta, Georgia, maybe 50 or 60 miles. I want to tell this story from her perspective, as she talked to me around 1978 or 1979. To frame the story and how the conversation came about, I will begin with my dad. We were watching TV, I think it was a show called In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. My mother, in most cases, scoffed at such shows and idea and hated the fact that I loved sci-fi and horror movies. Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite. My father and I were avid hunters and outdoorsmen. 
She was always scoffing or making some sort of grunt of disapproval when we watched those shows. She would say something funny like, does Bigfoot got your tongue? One night though, as we were making these jokes, she just sat there. She didn't say much for a minute before she started to tell us both a story. My dad, my brothers, and some of my dad's friends went hunting one night for raccoons and possums. When hunting at night, we always carried lanterns on poles from 12 to 15 feet long and had dogs accompany us. They all left just after supper, so all of us girls decided to sit on the house's front porch and enjoy the evening air. We sat there for a long time just gossiping about stuff, laughing and looking out at the field across the road in front of the house towards the creek. Note, this property is 80 plus acres with a highway running north and south dividing it into two parts. One piece was about 10 or 12 acres. The house was on the west side of the road and the rest of the land was on the east side and was used for farming except for the small tree line with a creek bottom, about 8 or 10 acres behind the creek cleared to farm. My sister Virginia said, Oh look, it's dad and the boys hunting. See the lanterns moving in the trees? We all looked and after a few moments, mother said, No, that couldn't be them, as they were at Mr. Williamson's, which was about 8 miles away in the opposite direction. Nine people were hunting, five had lanterns, four were handling the dogs, and there were no people or dog sounds to be heard, and we counted eight lights. My mom and older sister noticed the light was not a yellowish lantern color, but a blue color, and we all saw them moving from south to north and bobbing up and down, acting very strange. The light floated about in the trees for 20 to 30 minutes, still moving north, but no sounds could be heard and even the bugs were quiet. After that, they started to move west, but not directly towards our house. My mom told everyone to get inside the house. She and my oldest sister, Irina, were going to run up the road north to our aunt and uncle's home, about a mile or a mile and a half away. I was young and scared and did not want my mom and sister to have to leave us home. My mom and sister got about 50 feet from the house. I went out the door running after them. My mom was mad but took me in tow, and off we went. The road had trees on both sides after clearing the field area, and my aunt's house was about a small four-bedroom home sitting about 75 to 100 feet off the road. We lost sight of the light since we got into the trees, but on my mom's side, she thought the light looked like it was moving in my aunt's house's direction. When we got close enough to see my aunt's house, the lights were floating all around, and no light could be seen inside of it. The floating light looks about two times the size of a basketball. My mom ran to their house and banged on the door, but no one answered immediately. The light continued to float around the house, but moved off a little bit. My sister and I are now across the road and hiding on the edge of the trees near the mailbox. I saw my mom talking to her sister but could not hear what was being said. My aunt closed her door and my mom walked back out to us and we started to make our way back home. My mom was scared but trying not to show it. After we got 500 or 600 feet away from their house, we saw four of the lights were now following us. I got scared and started crying and my mom told my oldest sister and me to run back to our house as fast as we could. We took off and soon realized our mom was not behind us once we got to the walkway to our house. We started to yell for her, and after what we thought was forever, she appeared from behind the trees, walking as fast as she could. 
She was older, and after eight kids, not as spry as she used to be. When she saw us standing in the road, she yelled at us to get in the house now. The floating lights were behind her by about ten feet and did not come past the trees after my mom went out of the tree line. After about five more minutes, my mom came inside. She locked the door tight and then went to the back door and did the same. She told all of us to stay in the big room and be quiet. All of this occurred from about 8.30 to 10.30. When my mom returned to the house, our dad got back between 12.30 and 1 a.m., and we all screamed when he tried to open the door, and it had been bolted shut, something that didn't happen very often in the middle of nowhere Georgia in the 1930s. He was a little upset that the door was closed and they caught no game that entire night because the woods seemed too quiet and the dogs were acting spooked all night. My mom quickly took him to the kitchen and told him what was going on. As we were speaking to our brothers at the same time, but they were laughing at us. When my dad returned to the room, he, he told them to shut up sharply and be quiet. He then took my four brothers and took them to the porch and told two to remain there and the two oldest to come with him. They went to my aunt's house back up the road. They were still all armed with shotguns and rifles. After about two hours, they came back to our house. He told everyone we needed to be very alert for the next several weeks and stay out of the woods unless one of the boys was with us with a gun, and only during the day. No one was to go out to the woods at nighttime at all until it was told that it was okay. He said that the appearance of the haint lights would mean that the woolly buggers would be about. I asked him what he meant by woolly buggers, and he replied, saying they were tall, hairy men. They were like people, but they weren't people. My dad and mom recalled the time in the early 1900s when the haint lights showed up in the area close to where we were currently living, and woolly buggers had been seen killing livestock and attempting to get into people's homes during the night for several weeks after. For several weeks, my dad and brothers took turns standing guard on the front porch at night, and it was not until just before Thanksgiving that they stopped doing this whole thing that started in the spring. But a few weeks after the light appeared around their house up the road, my uncle died suddenly. Many people in the area blamed the haint lights for his death as he was just a little older than my dad at the time, so not much older than his late 40s. That's where she stopped her story. A few weeks later, I spoke with my aunts who confirmed my mom's story but seemed to get very upset with my mom for telling me. My grandmother on my mom's side had passed away before I was born, and my grandfather passed away when I was five. I don't remember him much. My father was two years younger than my mother, and he recalled when he was young and overheard his grandfather talk to other men about giant critters moving around in central and eastern Georgia, killing large livestock animals. He remembered the year was 1933, so this was way before my parents even knew each other, but the dates do match up. The property stayed in the family for many years after my grandparents' death until 2015, though it was not farmed anymore after about 1959. It had grown back with woods, so many of the relatives and I hunt on it from time to time over the years, from about the early 70s until it was sold. I never saw anything strange there, nor took much game from there. Still, a couple of my cousins called other family members and myself one year in the spring of turkey season in 2008 to ask if any of us had been walking through the property with blue-colored lights at night, 
as they were camping on the property at the time. I lived in Georgia at the time, but had my land to hunt on and had not been on that land since 1990, as I lived in Florida from then till 2005 when I moved back to Georgia. After talking for several minutes to my cousins, I don't think anyone had hunted on that land after 2010, till it was sold. The people who bought it, I believe, abandoned their plan a year or two later to build a house on it after the camper they parked on it was destroyed by someone, or something. They sold it, and I think it has since been sold again, but oddly enough, I live in Georgia at the time, in the Grantville area. I was only four or five miles away from Belt Road, where a Bigfoot-like creature has been seen from time to time. It is called the Belt Road Booger. I had many encounters with them as I lived far off the road, on 36 acres of land, which backed up to 3,000 plus acres of timberland. Again, I never saw anything crazy crazy, but I've had rocks and sticks thrown at my direction, and I've definitely heard footsteps stalking me while I hiked. Sorry for the long-winded story, but I guess to end this all off, my name is Chris, and my friends call me Big C as I am 6'4". I wanted to share this story from my mother because it became more relevant after hearing other people's stories that have been shared on this show. Even though this was not a first-hand story, I 100% believe this story that my mother told me. She was not the type of person to make up things and was not a great storyteller. Both of my parents were practical, grounded people. They thought I was crazy because I loved horror movies, ghost stories, and such things. I'm a teenage country boy from Louisiana. I never really wanted to have an encounter with a legendary monster before. But here's my story about just that. Now, so that you know, I don't live in a vast livestock area. Some people in my family that live 15 minutes away own farm animals, but no one in my neighborhood owns animals other than dogs and cats. That's what makes me think this is a new type of cryptid, potentially. Or at least, I think so. About two years ago, my neighbor, who only lives a couple of hundred yards away from my family and me, told my dad that he had heard something screaming in the ditch in front of his house the night before. He nearly fainted when he went out there to see what it was. He said he saw a massive, dog-like creature that looked like a cross between a Great Dane and a coyote. It was eating what looked like to be a big, fat cat. It looked at him with piercing red eyes and showed all of its bloody teeth. Even though it never went to attack him, they stood there for a few minutes, just staring each other down. Finally, he ran back into the house and grabbed his shotgun. When he returned to the ditch, nothing was left but a pool of blood. Somehow, my family and I never heard any of it. It didn't seem so strange at first, just an exciting story to talk about around my dad's friends. His best friend told him countless Bigfoot stories I know are mostly just BS. But I love hearing them because they give me something to think about when I'm bored. Nobody thought anything about this chupacabra thing, until sometime around Thanksgiving 2021. I was driving my truck around my small town with my country music playing loud, my windows down, and wearing faded blue jeans and a cowboy hat and a flannel shirt. I was sipping a beer and waving to everyone I drove by, along with my three dogs in the back seat and my girlfriend in the passenger seat. 
it felt like a picture-perfect evening. Even when we drove by a few dead squirrels, skunks, raccoons, armadillos, possums, and coyotes, it felt somewhat normal to see roadkill and hear the dogs howl and bark at the smell of blood. But while we were driving on an old dirt road that we drove down all the time, something felt off. We didn't know what it was until we found a few dead dogs and cats with collars on the side of the road. They seemed recently bloody and half-eaten. I recognized some of them as neighborhood dogs and cats. The question was, why the hell are they so far from our neighborhood? Five miles from home. Suddenly, the dogs in the back seat got nervous. They were trying to hide on the floorboards. So that you know, these dogs don't get scared easily. A hound dog named Coulter, a pit bull named Peach, and a rat terrier named Jack. My girlfriend, nor have I, ever seen them act this way before. Then we suddenly heard a loud whoop, like a coyote. I think coyotes killed these poor things, my girlfriend said. That still doesn't explain how they got out here, almost all at once. One coyote couldn't hold but maybe one or two small cats or dogs, I told her. Then another loud whoop pierced the air, and another, and another. Soon, we heard howls. Alright, let's get out of here, I spoke. If coyotes are out here, we need to kill them so they don't come back for more pets, my girlfriend told me. I agreed against my better judgment. We didn't have our guns, so I drove home to get them. We left the dogs at home, fearing these coyotes might carry them off. Our moms were against us going out coyote hunting at night, but our dads felt like we were almost adults, so they encouraged us to go if we had our guns. After nearly an hour... Our moms finally agreed, but my girl's big brother said he was coming with us anyway. I armed myself with a lever-action rifle, an Ivor Johnson 22 pistol, and a buck knife. My girlfriend got a 1911 pistol, and her brother brought a double-barrel shotgun that seemed like it was a hundred years old. I drove us back out to where we found the dead animals. Keep in mind, it was almost ten at night so we got our flashlights and guns and were ready to shoot up some coyotes. But all the dead animals were gone. Nothing but small spots of blood remained. Coyotes must have carried them off, my girl's brother said quietly. At this point, the coward side of me started to show, even though I'm the most armed. So I got on my knees and began to pray. I was asking God to protect us. We searched the dark woods for a half an hour until we decided to give up and go home. Until we heard an ear-piercing howl, and a dog-like figure began running at us. But it was so much bigger than a Great Dane. It looked like a damn bear. I yelled out, BEAR! And I shot my rifle. But I missed, and it lunged at my girl. She got out of the way in time and put three rounds into the thing's side. But it got up and started running away. Her brother shot at it with both shells in his shotgun and hit it in the foot. My girlfriend looked at me and asked, Did you see that thing? I said, Yeah, that was no coyote. It was so big, it had huge red eyes, just like your neighbor said. She spoke suddenly when we heard a loud howling. It sounded like 16 or 20 of those things were out there. My girl's brother reloaded his gun and said, We better get the heck out of here. So we got in my truck and we drove 60 miles an hour for who knows how long straight to get out of there on those dirt roads. Thankfully, we didn't run out of gas or wreck. 
I went fast for a long time because I didn't want those chupacabra things or whatever they were to follow us home. I don't know what those monsters were, but I believe they're some sort of chupacabra. As I mentioned, they seemed much more significant than chupacabras I've ever heard of, though. Last winter, I had an experience in Congaree National Park outside of Columbia that brought me to this show. It's a beautiful boardwalk that goes through the swamps and the cypress forest in them. If you look it up on the internet, this story will make some more sense. I lived in Columbia, South Carolina and frequented Congaree National Park, so I'm rather familiar with the area. I often would jump the fence and walk the boardwalk at night as it's super peaceful to walk the swamp and hear all the wildlife. They don't typically have rangers or guards after hours, so I was always alone. The last time I did this was in October of 2021. I took my usual stroll with the flashlight. I should mention again between the insects and frogs, the sound is loud. But roughly a mile in, the sound completely stopped. I heard what I thought was my wife call me from the trail ahead but she was not there. I was alone, and she was out of town. I then heard water sloshing to my right and saw nothing with my flashlight. I chalked it up to me being tired and kept moving. The wildlife started up shortly after again, and everything was fine. Maybe 15 minutes later, I noticed it got eerily quiet once again and heard swamp water sloshing on my left. But this time, it was more deliberate, like somebody was walking with a purpose. I was in a thick portion of the cypress and couldn't see more than 20 feet in front of me. And then I heard my wife's voice again. Again, she wasn't with me and she was out of town, certainly not moving through a swamp at 1am. I saw a human silhouette for a split second, but it was distorted, off if you will. Very skinny, pale, and taller than me at 6 foot tall. I noped the hell out of there and ran almost 2 miles back to my truck and didn't slow up until I heard the wildlife again. As I said, this is a boardwalk that's in a swamp in the boonies. Nobody is walking around in the water at night without a light, and I don't know of any big animal that walks in a bipedal pattern, and I have spent most of my life outdoors. I feel I should add that I wasn't high or sleep deprived either. I typically like the woods at night as well. I am 25 years old. I'm a man from the Midwest of the United States, and this is my account of the strangest thing I've ever seen while on this planet so far. When I was much younger, I lived with my parents and two brothers in a trailer park in the middle of a small Midwestern town in northern Missouri. Our trailer was at the end of the park, but was still surrounded by the neighboring houses along the four-way intersection with stop signs our trailer set at. One afternoon, while the sun was still in the sky, my two brothers and I went outside in our tiny yard by the road and were playing in a water sprinkler while my parents were inside. After some time, my brothers went inside, but I stayed outside jumping over the sprinkler by myself. I went to jump the sprinkler again and caught my foot on it and tripped and fell to the ground. I was lying on my back and sat facing the four-way intersection by our trailer with our trailer to my left and one of the roads that meet the four-way to my right. I was lying in the corner of the front and the side of the trailer. I was okay and immediately started to get up and jump some more when I heard a wet sloppy sound. 
While still laying on my butt with my hands behind me on the ground, I thought it was my swimming shorts I had on, but I couldn't seem to recreate the sound with them. I heard the sound again, and it sounded like something moving around in the water or swimming in the water, but the only water in the area was from the sprinkler, and it did not make the sound I was hearing. Still sitting on the ground, I looked around to see what was making this wet sound when suddenly to my left, besides our trailer, a person's head and shoulders emerged from the ground, completely covered in thick red blood. Still there, suddenly frozen in fear, I looked and could not tell any details of the person because of all the blood covering them. The person, or thing, noticed me there after a couple of seconds, turned their head, and looked right at me, while still from their shoulders down remaining underground. It looked like they had no eyes, or at least I could not see them. Their head was covered in thick red liquid. We stared at each other for what was no more than 20 seconds before I started backing up on my hands and feet to escape it. As I crab-crawled around the corner of the trailer out of its sight, he leaned out of the ground to keep looking at me from the corner. At this point, it was from the stomach up, leaning out of the ground with its arms still below the grass level, looking at me, and when it moved, I heard the wet sloppy sound again. He looked at me for a few more seconds before in one solid motion, he shot out of the ground to their feet completely covered head to toe in this thick, bloody-looking liquid. I'd say probably five or six feet tall, with an average build. I could tell from the shape that it was a man, but so caked in blood or goo, that's all I could really talk about, and all I could really remember. Still locked in on me, it turned its head and started frantically running down the street directly away from me, with the sound of wet bare feet hitting the ground. Panicking, I got up and ran inside, crying to my parents, and the memory got fuzzy after just recalling it. I have no idea what this thing was, where it came from, or why it came to be. Nobody I've ever shared this story with seems to even have a clue of what it could be. Most people say maybe it's a demon, maybe I just hallucinated, or maybe something in between. I'd love to know your thoughts in the comments down below. I'll probably never truly know, but my mind is always with many questions when I think about this experience. When it comes to buying a pre-owned vehicle, Moss Nissan is simply the best. With one of the largest selections of pre-owned vehicles in the Tampa Bay area, we have options for every situation and budget. And every vehicle comes equipped with Moss Care, which gives you added peace of mind and features and benefits such as lifetime oil changes, roadside assistance, and so much more. Visit today and let one of our knowledgeable team members give you all the information you need to make an informed car buying decision. Moss Nissan, whatever it takes. This event happened last summer in 2021. It was a beautiful day, and my friend Krista, AJ, and I were all off work, an occasion that never really happens. We decided to go on a hike, smoke a bit, and then get dinner. It was a fantastic day, but we wanted to keep it going. We all wanted to do something spooky and exciting. We live in a small town on the border of Maryland and West Virginia, so things got boring quickly especially in a place with no nightlife. We spent some time researching some creepy places we could drive to. We read about a back road where two girls were murdered and decapitated outside a college town in West Virginia. The stories say at night you can see the two girls searching for their heads on the roadside. We must have driven for about an hour looking for this road, 
but nothing exciting happened when we finally found it. None of us wanted to waste our time searching anymore, so we drove to an allegedly haunted cemetery about an hour away. The cemetery has over 14,000 graves and has a rather creepy history. It has a section of graves designated as the Historic District, which houses the very first tombs dating back to the 1800s. At the cemetery entrance is a vast Victorian-style house used as a funeral parlor. However, it had been abandoned and out of use for about 20 years at this point. In the middle of the massive cemetery was a mausoleum at the top of a tall hill. The mausoleum was a large marble structure and was highly costly when it was built in the early 1900s. According to quick Google researches, we read that most paranormal activity had been experienced at the mausoleum. We started at the historic district close to the cemetery entrance. Krista downloaded a spirit box app on her phone. I know what you're thinking. Apps aren't always accurate, but I genuinely believe this one is. A spirit box is a device, or in this case an app, that rapidly switches radio stations to the point to where it's just white noise. It's believed that spirits can manipulate the radio waves to speak to those in this realm. The app also had a built-in EMF reader, which records changes in electromagnetic field. Again, it is believed that spirit energy can manipulate electromagnetic fields. The more beeps, the more activity is happening around you. Anyway, we wander around the district with the app up and running. We asked a few questions out loud along the way. Is there anyone who wants to speak to us? How did you pass away? How long have you been here? These are fundamental questions that the spirit typically answers. Throughout the cemetery, there was absolutely no activity. We occasionally heard little blips on the radio. We even made out the words hello and savior, but other than that, it was rather quiet. After about an hour or so, we decided to drive up to the mausoleum for one last attempt to contact someone or something. I should mention that AJ was on crutches at the time, recovering from knee surgery, so we couldn't explore that long without him needing a break. We drove up the road that spiraled around the hill until we got to the building. The closer we got, we noticed fog rolling around the mountain but nowhere else in the area. We pulled up to the steep two-level stairway that led to the front of the building and I took a few pictures from the bottom of the hill as I was taking pictures during our explorations around the entire site. Krista and I walked up to the stairs while AJ wobbles. As soon as I got to the top, I felt uneasy, but I brushed it off as being creeped out by the fog and the creepy appearance of the mausoleum. Krista and AJ were over it, complaining that we hadn't seen or heard anything and that the online stories were all lies. Well, this was a bust, said Krista as she turned on the spirit box. Is there anyone here that would like to speak to us? I asked into the open air, not expecting anything to happen, just like the rest of the night. Typing out this next part makes me tremble. This part is nowhere near dull, though I might have preferred to be bored rather than what we experienced. As soon as I completed my sentence, the stations of the spirit box stopped. The sound that came over the speaker was the most inhuman, demonic sound I'd ever heard. It made the most guttural, 
blood-curdling growl that no human I've ever met could recreate. It replays in my head whenever I tell this story, burned into my brain where I can't escape it. We all looked at each other and immediately screamed and ran down the steps. When I say scream, I mean the entire town below probably woke up from it. I ran down the steps and started to pass AJ who was hopping down the steps as fast as he could. I see him drop one of his crutches and start hobbling down with one of his legs. Leave it! Go! I yelled as I ran past him and unlocked the car. I floored it out of there as fast as I could while we all caught our breath. What the hell was that? Krista screamed. No one had an answer. We were all just dumbfounded and in shock. Eventually, I turned around to go get AJ's crutch that was left on the stairs. I ran as fast as I could while singing silly hip-hop songs to help distract me from the fact that I was entering the scary place again. I got the crutch, hopped back in, and we finally made our way back home. We passed that old funeral parlor I mentioned as we exited the cemetery. As we drove by, we saw the lights flicker on and off three times. Um, isn't that place supposed to be abandoned? AJ asked with uneasiness in his voice. I don't think any of this place is abandoned, I said as we got onto the highway. When we got home, we looked at the pictures we had taken. All of my photos around the cemetery turned out clear and had no real abnormalities, aside from a few quote-unquote orbs, though I'm skeptical about them. Hey Swamp Folk, today's episode is sponsored by our good friends over at HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers fresh, quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week's time so you can savor summer flavors right from your home. HelloFresh now has 30 brand new recipes to choose from every single week. That's more than any other meal kit on the market. Get foolproof, step-by-step recipes meaning a joyful cooking experience and a stress-free summer. Plus, HelloFresh cuts back on the time spent in the kitchen with meals ready in and around 30 minutes or less. HelloFresh's new menu release includes Mediterranean recipes filled with fresh fruits and veggies, nuts, olive oils, and fiber-packed whole grains for nourishing balance. Personally, I've been using HelloFresh for a couple of years now, and I very much enjoy how they switch it up every season, and I think you guys will too. So join me and many others in the swamp. Go to HelloFresh.com Swamped16 and use code Swamped16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Again, HelloFresh.com Swamped16 and use code Swamped16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Come find out why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. I've been friends with this guy named Ryan for 8 years now. We met in 4th grade. We just finished our junior year of high school. He and I have both been a fan of random walks for quite some time. We've been doing it for a couple of years now during the winter, spring, summer, and fall. Safe to say we love taking walks. He lives a few blocks away from a cemetery. We go straight two blocks to get there and take a right down a hill. There's this bridge we go through, then there's the cemetery. It's on a large hill so most of it is not very visible unless you're up there. We got a little distant during our 8th grade year and didn't hang out too much. 
I became the popular kid, which was shocking since I've always been an introvert. But anyways, I digress. The point I'm making is we didn't go on many walks together. We rekindled our friendship our first year when COVID hit. We hung out more and talked more. We started walking to the cemetery more and noticed this yellow sports car that would be parked there. We didn't think too much of it. Maybe someone was grieving. It's a cemetery after all. We continued walking there, and the yellow car was at the same spot every single time we went. The lights were turned off. It just sat there for hours at a time. Again, we didn't think too much of it. After becoming a little more distant my sophomore year, we began hanging out more during the beginning of our junior year. We went to the cemetery like usual, and there was the same yellow car. It was just there doing nothing. We both know it wasn't a worker since the vehicle, just parked in the middle of the path, you can drive through. Not at the parking lot near the buildings. But we still carried on. Fast forward to May of 2022, we were just about to finish our junior year. We went to the cemetery at around 9pm since I got a job at a pizza place in January. I always worked 4 to 9, sometimes 4 to 8. Every weekday besides Thursday. We walked like usual, talking about true crime, how dry our love lives are, and about movies coming out soon. We noticed the car wasn't there for once. The cemetery has a lot of hills and stretches out. There are maybe a few thousand graves with still a lot of room. You must walk up a mountain to get to the main area, and most of the graveyard is still not visible because of the hills. We continue walking to where the car usually parks, since we've never been there. We continue talking about our issues and notice a vehicle driving in the path. We didn't think too much of it, but when it came close to us, we saw that it was yellow. The same type of headlights, the same license plate. It was dark out then, so we relied on our flashlights on our phones. We got a little freaked out, but carried on. We walked a little bit more until the yellow car stopped at its usual place. We stopped roughly 30 feet away from the vehicle for a second with our flashlights. We heard the door open and footsteps approach us. We freaked out and shut off our phone. We bolted away. We were faster than the person, but we knew they were running after us. I asked Ryan in a whisper if he brought pepper spray with him, and of course he didn't bring it the one time that we needed it. We hid behind big gravestones for a minute, waiting to see if this person would run by, but they didn't come. They must have given up. We waited for a couple of more minutes and bolted out of the cemetery, entirely out of breath. We joked about it a little since before we went into the graveyard we said, imagine if something terrifying were to happen to us. Speak of the devil. I wonder what would have happened to us that night if they caught us. I wonder just what they would have done to us. I'm glad that Ryan and I took extreme caution when we saw that car. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be writing this right now. Many people have asked me what I think caused this experience, and I don't really have an answer. So, in an attempt to explain, let me tell my story. I'm not really religious or spiritual, However, I simply can't ignore what happened. This happened in 2010. When I met the woman, who would later become my wife, we started renting a small house in a rather small town. I was in the process of beginning a new job and circumstances prevented me from staying in the house with her for the first week. We would talk on the phone each morning during my drive to work. 
She would explain to me each morning that she had struggled to sleep the previous night. She described sounds that kept her awake. It sounded like someone was running through the house. Objects were falling off the kitchen counter. Doors were slamming. After three days, I decided to go ahead and move in with her. I was convinced that someone was breaking in and harassing her. However, she was confident that she was sharing the house with a ghost. I took off work on the third day. It took me about eight hours to get everything moved in. I was taking a break on our bed, still fully dressed, when I felt something or someone tugging on my pant leg. I remained motionless, hoping that it would happen again. After a few seconds, it did happen again, much more aggressively this time. I felt a hand firmly placed on my leg just before it grabbed my jeans and started pulling. She was on the bed next to me, and no one else was with us. We had no pets as it was not allowed at the time. I immediately started having the same experiences as she had described over the phone throughout the night. It was like someone was destroying our kitchen, but nothing was ever out of place. There was running, as she explained, which sounded like a smaller person, perhaps even a child. I woke up one night to someone standing next to my bed hovering over me. I heard giggling. The individual bolted out of the room as I turned my head. It was too dark to notice any features. Over eight months' time, many unusual things happened. To make a long story short, I'll skip ahead to my prior experience, perhaps the most frightening. I was alone in the house, waiting to join an online seminar. I was sitting on my couch with my laptop on the coffee table. I heard the back door slam shut and a person began dashing through the house. These footsteps were heavier, and this person was quickly moving. Given the design of our tiny house, this person was running in my direction. I shot up and ran out of the house. I didn't stop until I reached the street. That's where I remained until my wife returned. As I was standing by the street, I was looking back in the house. A balloon from a recent party made its way from the kitchen into my bedroom, then back into the kitchen moments later. It felt like I was being watched by someone, and it also felt like I was watching somebody search for me going room to room, all while holding this balloon. This was the last thing to ever happen to us. It randomly stopped after that, but we continued living there in fear for four more years. I would give anything to experience it again in a strange way, though. I would try to be less afraid and approach the situation more analytically. My wife, on the other hand, was never scared of it. Unfortunately, my wife passed away a few years ago. I know she would have enjoyed sharing her story here. I still drive by the house occasionally, and no one has ever moved in. It's in a small town area where not a whole lot of people seem to be moving these days. Before starting, I must give some background. I live in an area in Saskatchewan, on a reservation, with my best friend. I was visiting a friend until late 1.30am, when we started to walk home. We had to walk to a T-road roughly 5 minutes from our friends. We both had to go in separate directions. His house was only 2 minutes away and mine was still another 20 minutes. He scored me a smoke for the walk and told me he'd see me tomorrow. As I walked home five minutes later, my best friend messaged me telling me he had just gotten home. Then he called me so I answered because I felt something was behind me. I told my friend immediately on the phone. He said not to run, so I didn't. 
Walking down the road, I heard a loud screech like some sort of person calling for help. It said my name, and my heart stopped because it sounded exactly like my late auntie who passed away a year before this incident. My friend yelled at me over the phone to run and not look behind me, but I didn't listen. So I looked behind me and saw a tall beast with antlers roughly 100 to 150 yards behind me. That head was the actual skull of a deer. It yelled at me, I see you, in a very dark, almost abnormal voice. And keep in mind, to get home, I still had a minimum of 10 minutes of running. So I turned and bolted as fast as I ever ran because I thought I was going to die. And luckily enough, I had my friend on the phone and screamed to him to call my grandfather to bring the truck and rifle to the bottom of the road. And as I was running, I felt as if this thing was three times faster than me. As I got closer, the screams of whatever was chasing me sounded more distant, but I was still too frightened to stop running. Still, as I got closer to him, I heard my dog, so I started calling out for him, and he came to me. At the same time, I collapsed and passed out, and maybe five hours later, I awoke in the ER, had a bandage over my shoulder, and asked why I was there. Hence, they showed me pictures of when I got brought in by my grandfather. I had a huge scar, almost like four claws, but too far apart to be a bear. My grandfather told me that my dog was bitten once and hurt almost like it was protecting me. At the same time, I was unconscious at the approach of my road. Ever since, my dog has never left my side. He even has a hard time when I go to school. But that is the story of my, what I believe to be, Wendigo encounter. You don't need to believe me, but ever since I have been way too afraid to be left alone without a friend and my dog. And if you want to know my dog's name, his name is Bear. He is a whole breed, Black German Shepherd. My name is Billy, and I live in Minnesota. Most of the state is a mix of urban and rural areas, but I stay close to the city. This story being one of the reasons. This story doesn't have any ghosts or ghouls, but it does have a genuinely terrifying experience that has stuck with me. I used to be a canvasser for a local broadcasting company. I would go with my team to different towns and ask for donations for the company. Some towns would be in suburban areas and others would take us far into the countryside. One day when we were out in the middle of nowhere, each sent on our respective routes, I came across a white painted house that immediately sent chills down my spine. The paint was chipping and hadn't been tended to in years. It wasn't nothing compared to the yard, though. Inside the tiny wire fence area, vines and weeds great at least five feet tall. We were all instructed that if the gate wasn't locked, we could open it and go in. But standing at a stout five foot six meant the irritating plants would be smacking me in the face. Still, I'd rather be honest and say I went in and tried than lie and risk reprimanding. Thinking back, I should have just lied. I had to fight through weeds and sharp spines of plants that didn't want me there until I eventually reached the screen door. The outside windows of the patio were blocked with taped newspapers, blotting out any chance to look inside. My instinct was to run from this strange place, but I calmed my nerves and continued to go in anyways. I checked the handle to feel it was unlocked. As per my job description, I was allowed to open and enter the screen door. I wish I hadn't. I had to shove my body into the door to open it. 
The inside was a place of nightmares. There were piles of delivery boxes, some molding in the corners. I stepped over piles and piles of... I don't even know what to call them. There was mail here, squirrel carcasses there. There was feces and flies swarming its body. I had to look away to avoid screaming or vomiting. I got to the main door of the house and knocked twice. No answer. I hit again, a little firmer this time. I hope this person answers the door quickly so I can leave. Why I didn't immediately bolt at that sight was beyond me. At the third knock, I heard someone whispering through the door. I asked if the person could speak up, and the response was a woman screaming so loud it shook the patio. Get the hell out! She didn't need to repeat herself. I bolted out of the deck, through the weed-infested yard, and back to the car. I stayed there the entirety of my shift. I was let go from that job, but in hindsight, I think that was a blessing and a reminder of why I stay close to the cities. Although a harrowing adventure, I hope someone out there enjoyed my nightmare. This happened last summer. This has been a bizarre and downright creepy encounter that has left me scratching my head for a long time now. I live in North Carolina. My father and I were at this park, a very short drive into the country, but it is very rural. I like saying that in North Carolina cities, you can drive 20 minutes in any direction and end up in the country. Anyways, this park is right along the Cape Fear River. My father and I have always been into finding more secluded trails and going off track. Not too far, of course, because it's more peaceful, and we also like to smoke weed and not be offensive to others or other people with kids. We like this park because it's nothing but woods with private trails. We had found this trail by accident, which was not as popular as the others. It is a little messier and below water level, so it floods out a lot, especially when it rains. But when it's dry, it's generally a gorgeous trail. There is an old bench, about a quarter of the way through, right on the river where we would stop and have smoke breaks. The trail curves around a huge ditch opening right past this bench. I always looked at this opening when we walked by because I could never figure out why it was there. The only option to me was that it was man-made. It appears that most, if not all, of the park used to be a landfill or a dump, so maybe this ditch was because of that. My best guess was that it was about 50 feet wide and around. I don't know, maybe 30 feet deep. We are leaving the bench heading towards the bend in the trail, and I kid you not, a puff of smoke shoots right out from behind a tree. There was even a smell to accompany it, like incense. But to me it smelled like a scented cigar. My father and I thought we would run into someone on the other side of the tree smoking, since we were there too. But when we rounded the tree, the ditch was right on the other side, and nobody was there. The tree was right on the edge. There's no way in hell someone could have been standing there, and we heard nothing. We weren't freaked out. We just thought it was weird and kind of cool at the time. It wasn't too strange to me until we came home that night. We regularly go to this park and trail, and I swear we walked that same patch and there was never a ditch there. I even remember us passing the bench and I expected to see the trench, but maybe we somehow went a different way. I didn't want to jump to conclusions, so I came back another day, just my dog and me. This time it was wet because it had been raining and I knew the beginning would be flooded, so I went from the other direction on the trail. 
I felt I was getting to where the ditch was about to be. You know, like that feeling your body has been somewhere close to an area before. I started to feel nervous and scared. It was a bright, beautiful day and the park was busy, but I absolutely could not take another step. So I turned around. We have been back since, but I have never seen the ditch again. Maybe we subconsciously avoided it, but I had wanted to see the tree again so badly. I could never stop thinking about this incident because my father and I both saw and smelled the smoke. I even tried to find the trees and see if any of them naturally did this, for some plants will shoot out pollen, but it looked like a puff of smoke to both of us. I also investigated lore or something supernatural, but all I could find was either demons or fairies. The smell wasn't bad at all, and we didn't get any initial lousy feelings. We also happened to be talking about God and spirituality at the time, so maybe it was an angel. I am honestly nervous to know what it could have been. I think about this incident almost every single day and would like to know if anyone here in the swamp has any ideas. I might try and go back again soon. Greetings, Swamp Dweller. I've got a story that's not necessarily the most terrifying, but it's very concerning and worrisome and has got me feeling quite creeped out. So to begin, this happened back in 2015 in the mountains of North Carolina on the Blue Ridge Parkway. I can't remember the exact area we were at, but it occurred at one of the many outlooks along the parkway. At the time, my girlfriend and I took a road trip and decided to drive at night to avoid traffic and road construction delays. We made a few stops at the overlooks along the way. We had been going for quite some time and I decided that the last overlook we would stop at would be probably about two hours. Then we would continue. My vehicle at the time had a sunroof so looking at the stars was nice and we enjoyed it. Once we parked at this area and got settled, we gazed at the stars for quite some time, almost in a trance-like state, and we soon were both fast asleep. I then awoke, remembering I didn't lock the doors when something caught my peripherals. It was a shadowy tall figure that didn't look human at all. This shadowed figure reminded me of your typical gray alien, with dim glowing yellow eyes, almost like embers or hot coals from a fire. I rubbed my eyes thinking I was seeing things but I wasn't, and it seemed like it was growing taller. It's like I couldn't move fast enough to crank the engine and haul ass out of there, but I did just that, and as soon as I did so, my girlfriend shot wide awake, asking me what was going on. As we burned out of the parking space and fled, I could see the figure move into the middle of the road behind us. I ripped around a hairpin corner, no longer in sight of that thing, whatever it was. My girlfriend continued to ask me, and I told her I had seen something standing near the car and it did not look like a person. She tried calming me down, telling me to slow it down. But when I did slow down some, I noticed there were headlights from a different car approaching from the rear at a fast speed. I hadn't seen a single vehicle since sunset. The blinding headlights were now a few feet from my tail end, and they were easily about to ram into me. What is this asshole's problem? My girlfriend questioned. I said something along the lines of maybe that's the thing I saw, and maybe it was a person. 
I also mentioned we wouldn't get too far like this. Then, just like that, the headlights vanished. What the hell? I said as I glanced in the rear view, tapping my brakes to illuminate the silhouette of a work van with a single occupant. The headlights came back on, literally inches off my bumper. I made a beeline exit to get off the parkway and head back towards Asheville or Waynesville. I can't quite remember. But so did the tailgater. Panic was setting in because we knew this van was following us. I see an open gas station in the distance and floor it, pushing our vehicle to about 100 miles per hour. I slowed my approach and pulled into the gas station outside the front doors. The van continues down the road, passing us, making us both sigh in relief. I asked my girlfriend what color was the van. Did you get to see it? She nodded and said it was a military tan color with a very dark window tint. It looked like some sort of work van. As we were about to go into the store, the same van pulls into the station, parking at a distance. My girlfriend screams, yelling, let's get out of here. I backed the car out quickly, lighting up the pavement again and blowing past the parked van, this time glancing at our pursuer. Have you ever seen that part in the Matrix where the agent begins to shift and morph? That is precisely what this person looked like. Again, I got the car up to speed, rolling a hot 100 miles per hour, trying to lose this, well, whatever this was. A solid minute or two passes and my girlfriend says the van is no longer back there, that our speed outran it. I think it's time to head home, sighing relief, and she agreed. On the route back home, there wasn't much traffic, but we traveled at least 130 miles. When I butt into the opposing traffic lanes, I see it all too familiar. When I butt into the opposing traffic lanes, I see an all too familiar van. And I mean the exact same one, getting quite unnerved and antsy at this point. My girlfriend said the same thing, telling me to stomp on it. I get off the highway and make a way for a police station. We make it to the station, park, and wait trying to collect ourselves from the crazy episode we just encountered. Across the street from the station were a car park. Across the street from the station was a car park and a strip mall. My girlfriend speaks up and points toward the strip mall, gasping and cursing. It's the same freaking van again. It's the same van from the parkway. And then two more identical vans pull up next to this one. We watched in horror as these tall, dark figures emerged from the backs of the vans and began crossing the street in our direction. I laid on the horn and began flashing my bright lights in front of the police station, getting the attention of the entire station, to which three officers came running out, yelling if we needed help. As I went to look back to where the figures were, there was nothing. Just an empty parking lot, not a single van in sight. I don't know what we encountered that day, but it wasn't natural. First off, I'm sorry for my bad English as it's not my first language. This story is 100% real. Here is a little bit about me. I live with my mom, dad, and younger brother with our dog in a very rural area of Bavaria in Germany. When this happened, I was about 13 years old. We don't have any close neighbors. It was a very cold Saturday in December, 
I remember the day because my mother worked only on Saturdays. My brother, father, and I spent our afternoon watching movies. In fact, we watched one of the Narnia movies. It was close to 5pm at this point, and since it was winter, it was nearly getting dark outside. The room was only lit by the TV and our fireplace. At one point, my brother looked outside the window because it started to snow heavily. We all looked outside the window when all of a sudden my dog began to growl. He ran up and down the room, very alert. This was very unusual for him. My dad stood up and looked around, but he didn't see anything at all. After a few minutes, he began to calm down again. We returned to our movie, and everything seemed fine for a few more minutes. Then he started doing it all over again. I noticed my brother was staring out the window next to our back door. I asked him what he saw, and he shook his head. Then, all of a sudden, we saw an old lady approaching our back door. We were baffled because hardly anyone comes out here, especially not an old lady like her. She looked to be around 80 or 90 years old, wearing one of the most typically grandma aprons I have ever seen and a headscarf. Mind you, it was about negative 10 Celsius outside. She tapped on the back door glass and started to smile really weird. Meanwhile, my dog hid under the table, whimpering and growling. My brother came close to me and my dad walked to the back door and opened it a bit. In a confused tone, he asked what she was doing in our backyard. She smiled and looked directly at us, not even noticing my dad. She took a step forward to the door, shoving her foot into the crack of the door. My dad immediately shut the door close. She glared at him and then at us before starting to laugh maniacally. Then she just calmly walked away like nothing had ever happened. We looked at each other in confusion, not knowing what to say. My brother and I looked outside the window behind us. We couldn't see her. The only way in and out of our backyard was the small patch next to the house. From the window behind us, we must have seen her leaving, but she didn't pass by that window. My dad stepped outside and couldn't see her anywhere. Neither could he see any footprints in the snow. There was absolutely no way the tracks would have been covered by snow already since only a couple of minutes had passed between her leaving and my dad going outside. To this day, we don't know what we encountered. I don't know if this was anything paranormal or not. It may not seem so creepy to you, but to us kids, this was the most terrifying thing we have ever witnessed. <laughs>